This podcast is a production of the Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska, a place where real people meet a real God to live in a real world. For more information, visit our website at www.communitycovenant.net. Oh, all right. Thank you. No, I kind of like this better anyway, truth be known. So, hey, I hope you noticed as you came in today that there's something different in the hallway as you enter the worship center. How many of you saw the prayer wall this morning? I am telling you, I am so excited about what the Lord is doing in our church through prayer. There are so many good things happening. Um, lives are being transformed. Uh, people are being healed uh, physically, emotionally. Uh, it, it is just a movement of God in our church. Uh, if you've not um, gone back to be prayed for, or if prayer has not been a part of your regular practice as a follower of Jesus, I just encourage you to, to live into that. Um, Hudson Taylor wonderful missionary. This is what he said about prayer. He said, the power of prayer has never been tried to its full capacity in any church. Hmm. Wouldn't it be great if we were the church that did that? The power of prayer has never been tried to its full capacity in any church. If we want to see mighty wonders of divine grace and power wrought in the place of weakness, failure, and disappointment, Let the whole church answer God's standing challenge. Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Okay? Prayer is powerful. And uh, where's Ken Thomas? Ken, come on up here. Uh, Ken is on our prayer team and helps coordinate our Sunday morning prayer. This is what it looks like. When people are using it and it's filled up, you can see that. Ken, you want to just give a little explanation about how people can participate in the prayer wall? Well, um, as you can see, uh, both here and in the in the hallway, um, there's a little uh, piece of paper. You, you write your uh, prayer request on the piece of paper. You write your name or not. Uh, but we, we ask you to monitor the tag that you put up. It's magnetic, so... Uh, uh, Make your make your prayer request on the piece of paper. Stick it on the uh, on the wall. Now we're in uh, week three. The it's week one, two, three, four for the weeks of the month. Uh, so if if you have a prayer prayer request today, uh, just uh, button that up in the in week three. Your 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 prayer request will be uh, before the congregation for uh, four weeks, and. Um, once there's a prayer request up there, that's the time where the rest of us join in. Because uh, every time someone stops and prays for that prayer request, uh, we want you to put a colored sticker on there. And uh, uh, the, the colored sticker means that you're supporting your, your brother and sister in Christ by, uh, by praying for them. There's a little uh, a shelf just around on the, on the, by, by the uh, welcome window. Uh, that has uh, colored stickers, uh, pens, uh, prayer request cards, and um, 
and what we hope to do is uh, is run out frequently of uh, of all the stuff. Um, the uh, the fifth block is is really uh, uh, one of the probably the most important block because we we want to see when God answers the prayer. Okay, uh, we're, we're going to have to. Um, uh, as the weeks cycle by, we're going to have to clean out uh, the, the prayer requests that are in that week for the, so that we can fill it up again. But uh, as God answers your prayer, uh, pin them up over in the answered column, and those are going to be there permanently. We're, we're not going to, I mean, unless the thing's just fallen down, um, it should be very soon. But... Um, uh, the the uh, all the so all the answered prayers go over in the answered answered prayer block and uh, and they're they're going to stay there because um, uh, that becomes a testimony of the body of Christ that that God is working in our, in our body so uh, and we uh, there, there's victory there that's that's how we overcome is through uh, the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony so um, we we just uh, we want to demonstrate uh, to one another. That um, that you're in our thoughts and prayers. Uh, you have a prayer request. I mean, just look at look at all the people that, that are uh, that are behind you. Remember, um, uh, was it Verizon? It was five or six years ago, and um, and they they had this uh, they had this this ad on TV. It was you know here's your network, and uh, and all you know, all the people would uh, be behind this one person. That's uh, that's the way it works here. So um, uh, plunge in, um, you know. Look look for uh, look for prayer cards on there. Look for uh, you know. Stop by there. See what's going on in in the lives of uh, of your brothers and sisters, and uh, and pray for them uh, because uh, that's that's when God acts. That's when God moves. So, Thank you. And you know what? God gets the glory when prayer is answered. Do you know that? And uh, we want to give God glory. We want to see that last quadrant filled up with answered prayer. And we can say, look what the Lord has done. And we can give God the glory because he is really worthy of our praise. And God works through prayer. Glory reminds me often that prayer goes where the body cannot, right? Uh, our prayers go literally to the place where they're needed. So with that, I want to encourage you. There are directions there. Uh, you can read more about it. And also, um, don't forget that as you pray, God is a God who not only hears, but he's a God who responds. And we can count on that. All right. Well, hey, listen, today is Palm Sunday. <clears throat> and I want to begin with a story that I heard just last week on the mission trip down to uh, La Fuente Ministries and Nana's house in Topeak, Mexico, comes from one of the missionaries, one of the leaders in the, the church there, in the ministry there. Uh, his name is Tony Simon. And uh, Tony uh, is affectionately known by uh, the teams that go down there as the task master uh, because he really puts our teams to work. And he works us hard. And he exposes us to all kinds of things like we've never done before, doesn't he, Janelle and Thad? That's right. But Tony was telling me a story. I just have to share it with you. Uh, Tony's a missionary. He comes from Chicago. And uh, his denomination was having a, a conference for the pastors. It was a, a pastor's conference, an association of pastors from, from his denomination down there. 
And uh, he was in Chicago for this conference, and he was one of the speakers. But he noticed that the, the pastor, who uh, is the head of uh, the pastor's um, association, very well-respected, I'll just call him Dr. Uh, Harry Smith, uh, wasn't one of the speakers. In fact, he noticed that Harry was in the front row for many of the sessions, uh, but was quiet and observant. And he really, really felt humbled that he would be a speaker at this conference, uh, but Dr. Smith, Harry Smith, wasn't. And uh, so he felt like he wanted to go up and meet Dr. Smith. So uh, in between one of the sessions, he introduced himself and said, you know, I'm just uh, so honored uh, to be here and and to meet you, and and really, I, I'm humbled that I would be speaking, and that you're not on the, you're, you're not on the program to speak. And of course, uh, uh, Doctor Smith said, "Don't worry about it. You know, I'm very excited to hear what you have to say, and uh, it's going to be a great conference." And Tony just felt such encouragement, so he gets on the phone one evening. He calls us. Why? Said you won't believe it, um, but I uh, have started this relationship with. With Harry Smith, can you believe that? And 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 I'm one of the speakers, and he's not even on the program. And I'm I'm really a little bit nervous because I'm going to be speaking, and and he's going to be listening, and 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 wow! And his wife said, "Now listen, don't say anything that's going to get you in trouble, Tony, because Tony's apt to do that, right?" And so Tony spoke, and then afterwards there was a meal, and he sat down again. There, Doctor Smith sat right next to him, and he's thinking, "Man, this man wants to mentor me. He wants to care for me." Uh, he really sees potential in me, and, and kind of deep down inside, he's saying, man, who knows where this could lead to, you know, in the association. And, but he kept remembering what his wife said, don't say anything, it's going to get you in trouble, Tony. And so he just heard Dr. Smith talking to him and reassuring him and giving him good words. And, and lo and behold, during the days of the conference, it seemed like Dr. Smith just wanted to spend time with, with Tony. Until finally the last day of the conference came, and they were talking, and and Dr. Smith began to say some things that seemed a little odd to Tony. And, and Tony looked at, this, looked at him and, you know, I, I'm not sure that this is Dr. Smith. And so he uh, went into a room where there were some other pastors. And he said, hey, you know that guy I've been talking with? He goes, I, I thought he was Dr. Harry Smith, but... Uh, I'm not quite sure that he is. Is, is that Dr. Smith? And uh, his colleague said, no, we don't even know who that guy is. He showed up early in the conference. He's been sitting in the front row. We, quite frankly, we couldn't imagine uh, why you were spending so much time with him. All right? All right. So he felt so embarrassed. Fast forward a few months. He's at another event. And... Uh, He's in line getting his food, and he, he looks, and right here next to him in line is the real Dr. Harry Smith. Okay, and he says, I am not going to say a word. I'm going to keep my head down. I'm just going to get out of this food line as quickly as I can and find a place to sit, right? All of a sudden, Dr. Smith turns and says, Tony, I understand that at the last conference, you and I became very fast friends. And he was so embarrassed. True story, okay? But really what it talks about is a mistaken identity. Uh, Tony identified somebody, 
and thought he was Dr. Smith and placed on him expectations uh, that one should have for a leader of a, a, a pastor association. But the only problem was it wasn't Dr. Smith. It was somebody else. And, and he had placed on this man, this stranger that had just showed up at the conference and no one really knew who he was, expectations that should have only been placed upon Dr. Smith. This morning, as we see Jesus approaching uh, Jerusalem, getting ready for the triumphal entry that we know as Palm Sunday, we see different groups of people that have placed different expectations upon him. In fact, those expectations have to do with how they identify him. And so, as he approaches, each group of people places a different expectation. But the reality is that Jesus is no ordinary king. In fact, he's going to exceed all the expectations that all the groups of people have placed upon him. But he's going to do it in a way that's very unexpected. And so to really understand and, and get a feel for the, these groups of people, we need to look back a little bit before our passage here in, in Luke 19. We actually need to start in Luke 18.35, where Jesus heals a blind beggar. And then we're going to move to uh, chapter 19, where he uh, sees Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus comes to faith. Zacchaeus, a tax collector. Uh, then he tells a, a parable of uh, the ten minus, which is or mina, which is about a three months wage. And then we move into uh, the actual event that our passage tells us about today uh, on Palm Sunday. So we have three kinds of people here. The first we're going to see uh, are those who recognize. Jesus is king. They have a sense that he is the Messiah, the promised one of God, the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. And we're going to put these people into the category of the, the committed, okay? Uh, those would be his disciples, those in his inner circle, those in his outer circle, those who are closely following his ministry. And, and to some extent, although not perfectly clear, uh, they understand Jesus and they understand his ministry, uh, and they frame it in the sense of that, that messianic promise. Right? Then you have the second group. And uh, they're not committed, they're the curious. Now, they, they travel with the committed. They're following Jesus, as we see here uh, in Luke chapter 18, beginning with the healing of the blind beggar. Uh, they, they see the miracles of Jesus, uh, and... They extol him uh, as potentially Messiah. They don't have a full understanding of what that means, but they're more joining in the crowd. They, they blend in with the committed. They're curious. They're, they're really interested in a few things. Number one, they're hoping that Jesus is going to establish the kingdom of Israel, reestablish it to its former glory. But Jesus wants to establish the glory of God. Uh, they also want deliverance from the Roman oppressors, the oppression of Rome, uh, uh, another foreign occupying nation. 
But Jesus wants to do more than deliver them from the oppression of Rome. He wants to deliver them and give them victory over the oppression of sin. Okay? And the third thing is, with Israel being reestablished to its former glory, with the Roman oppressors once and for all, all right, being defeated, then being liberated, they are hoping for an improved quality of life. Under Roman oppression, there was great taxation, which is one of the reasons why they resented Zacchaeus so much, right? He uh, was an agent of the Roman government, even though he was the son of Abraham. Uh, He was part of that oppressive taxation. And so they're hoping that not only is Jesus going to restore Israel to its former glory, secondly, uh, he's going to deliver them from the oppression of Rome, but thirdly, with that deliverance from the oppression of Rome, they are going to have an improved life. Their lifestyle is going to improve. Where Jesus says, I don't want to improve your life. I want to give you new life. I want to transform your life. I want to give you an abundant life. And so there you see that, that second group, the, the curious, uh, blending in with the committed, but they definitely have expectations that they've placed upon Jesus with their understanding of the return of the Messiah. Then you have the third group. Okay? And, and that third group, they're the critical. Those are the religious leaders of Israel. Those are the Pharisees that in Luke's passage are standing uh, outside of Jerusalem and as Jesus is approaching, okay, and as the crowds are, are uh, adoring him, as, they're, as they're, uh, they are celebrating his coming into the city, they're the ones that want to suppress the crowd. They're the ones that are going to go tell Jesus, hey, listen, tell your followers to stop this. Uh, And their interest was twofold. One, they wanted uh, Jesus not to upset the status quo. Not to upset the status quo. Uh, But secondly, uh, as as they saw the crowds and they saw the celebration and they saw Jesus coming in and approaching the city of Jerusalem, they're thinking, what will this mean to our relationship with Rome? Because Rome is on their mind as well. And they had a, a favored status with Rome. They were allowed to practice their religion. They were allowed to maintain their own religious authority and power as long as they maintained order with the people. And so here they're seeing this, and they're seeing the people hailing Jesus as king, and they're saying, how will Rome interpret this? Is this a threat to the power and authority of Caesar? when their real calling should have been their concern with the power and the authority of God Almighty. And so you see all three here in the story. And really, all three are represented on this Palm Sunday. In any church or in any place where people hear the story of Jesus and his triumphal entry. There are those who are committed And their commitment is such that even though they don't fully understand what it all means, they've seen enough, they know enough, that in faith, 
They trust him. And they're, they're, they're willing to follow him amidst their doubts, amidst the trials that come with being his follower. They're all in, whatever that means. Okay? Then there are those who are the curious, and sometimes they blend in with the committed. They, they look like they're committed. But you see, they have a very specific agenda for Jesus. Jesus is okay as long as he fits in or he helps them work their agenda out. You see, it's, it's not about Jesus as king. It's about Jesus as consultant. I want Jesus as someone that, that, that I can go to when I need advice or uh, when I need a, a healing, or when I need a wisdom, or I need a relationship fix that's broken, or I need help on the job. I want to be able to consult with Jesus, but I want to be king. Ostensibly, it looks like commitment. But, but rather than commitment to Jesus the king, it's a desire for Jesus the king to be committed to our own kingship. You see the difference? And that often is the case with those who are curious. They, they, they want Jesus as a consultant to bring about their plans uh, to see their agenda come to fruition. Now, Tim Keller says it this way. Most people want Jesus as a consultant rather than as a king. And he does not come that way. Most people want Jesus as a consultant rather than a king. And so, as we begin and we look here in Luke 18, we see Jesus coming into Jericho, and he's on his way now to Jerusalem, and uh, he comes across this blind beggar, often a a person that has an infirmity or a disability. Uh, They have no means of income. They sit on the side of a road, and as people come by, they approach them and they ask them for money. Only this time, the blind beggar says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now that, that um, reference to son of David comes right from Isaiah 11, 1 through 3. It's a, it's a messianic name, a messianic term. It's a term associated with the Messiah. And, and so here's the irony, okay? And this sets up what we're reading in Luke 19. Here is a blind beggar who although physically can't see, spiritually, he's crying out to Jesus, son of David. He recognizes him as Messiah. When the religious leaders who are sighted are spiritually blind. You see that contrast? How that's going to be set up here? And what do the people do to him? They say, be quiet. And what does he do? He yells even louder, Jesus, son of David! Have mercy on me. He cries out even louder. And of course, we see that contrasted to the religious leaders who try to silence Jesus in our passage this morning. And they they say to him, hey, get your followers to stop this. Quiet them. And Jesus says to them in verse 40 of Luke 19, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Okay, the stones will cry out. And so here's this blind beggar. He's crying out. He's told to be quiet. He continues to cry out. Just as the religious leaders 
tell Jesus to quiet those who are celebrating his entrance, his approach to Jerusalem. He says, I tell you that the rocks and the stones will cry out. Now, the interesting thing is that that this is full of messianic imagery. Look at this. Jesus approaches Jerusalem, and he says to his disciples in 1930, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, say the Lord needs it. That is a direct reference. Okay, a direct reference to Zechariah 9.9. Right up here on the screen. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And as Jesus approaches on the foal of a donkey, in the fulfillment of Scripture of Zechariah 9.9, we see his agenda is different than the expectation of the curious or those who are expecting him to restore the the old glory to the nation of Israel or or those who want to see the oppression of Rome uh, overthrown or those who want their lives improved. Rather than seeing a king come in raw power with all the pomp and, and celebration that a king or an emperor one might approach the city, here we see King Jesus, the Prince of Peace, approaching humbly, because in his humility, he is going to fulfill God's plan that will take him to the cross. Further, we see here in verse 37 of chapter 19, it says, when he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the, is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That's the Psalm 118.26 that we read this morning. It's a messianic psalm. And in Zechariah 14.4, look at this. It says, referring to the Messiah, on that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem. Again, a messianic fulfillment. So, We see the blind beggar crying out just as the rocks will cry out. They cannot be silenced. Then we see Zacchaeus, the tax collector. He comes to the Lord. His life is transformed. And in Luke 19.9, Jesus says, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. That's very difficult for a righteous Jew to accept that a tax collector, an agent of Rome, would be considered a son of Abraham. But not only that, because of this, this man too is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and save that what was lost. The implication is this. If you were a righteous practicing Jew of that time, a son of Abraham, you thought that you were already in good standing with God. What, what do you need to be saved from? You're a good Jew. And so the implication that sons of Abraham would need this deliverance 
that would come from Jesus. In verse 10, he says, the Son of Man came to seek and save that who was lost. That's his mission statement. Okay? And we're going to see that fulfilled in this Easter week as he goes to the cross and then he's resurrected. And so we see that. Then we see the parable of the ten minus or the three days worth of wages. And this is a parable that also points to the fact that he's not going to establish his kingdom right away. Because in the parable, you know, uh, those who are the king's servants are given money to invest. They're tasked with a job. The king goes away and then he comes back. And that's pointing to the fact that, no, Jesus isn't going to establish his kingdom as so many expect and hope he will right now. There's going to be a time between his entrance into Jerusalem as king and the time he comes the second time, it is his second coming, in which his kingdom is fully established. And in, the, in, in, the, in between time, you and I and all who are his followers have been given work to do. He's made an investment in us. He's given us talents and abilities. He's asked us to do some things, to be faithful to his call upon our lives. And the implication here is that, yes, he's going to establish his kingdom, but in between the time of his first and second coming, you and I are not only under his authority, but we're accountable to him for the work that he's going to have us do. Because here we see Jesus as king, but also as righteous judge. And the truth is this. that we're accountable, we're accountable to Jesus for what he's asked us to do as his followers. Well, the Pharisees emphatically reject Jesus. They're not committed, they're not curious, they're critical. They reject him in our passage in verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciple. I tell you, he replied again, If they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Here's the point, okay? What Jesus is saying is, You may reject me. You may emphatically, uncategorically reject me and who I am. But the stones are going to cry out. In other words, they recognize the one who has come, God incarnate, who is the God of all creation. The stones are smarter than you are. They have more sense. They recognize what you fail to see. And they're going to cry out. It also makes another reference. In Habakkuk 2.11 we see throughout the Old Testament that wherever there is an injustice, nature cries out. Okay? We see it throughout Scripture that, that nature cries out about injustice. And here, the injustice of the religious leaders who emphatically reject Jesus, it's an injustice perpetrated by religious leaders against God. And so nature cries out as if to give testimony to be a witness not only to the fact of who Jesus is, but the fact of the mistake and the peril 
that the religious leaders are in because of their injustice. And so, when it says these stones cry out, some scholars also think that that's a reference to what's going to happen to Jerusalem. For about 40 years later in 70 AD, General Titus lays siege on Jerusalem. There's a, a Jewish revolt against Rome. And that goes on for about three years, four years. And in the end, in 70 AD, Jerusalem is destroyed. And so some scholars think that that's a reference to the fact that the, the stones of the city, when the city is destroyed, will cry out because of the injustice perpetrated by the religious leaders who failed to recognize Jesus. I love Psalm 96, 11 through 13. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the seas resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. And that, that's kind of the point of that parable of the three days wages. That there's an accountability with what people do with Jesus. And that he is not only king, but he is righteous judge. Well, finally in verse 41 it says, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept. Why? Why did he weep? If even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. In other words, what he's saying is the religious leaders, those who have been trusted with the spiritual welfare of the people, have failed to recognize that he is the Messiah, that he is the one who has come to bring peace, to establish his kingdom. Okay? But they failed to recognize it. Not only that, they emphatically reject him and all that that means. And so there's judgment that comes with that. And just in the past, as you look at the history of Israel, when you see the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the, and, and, and the other conquering armies, it's a form of discipline upon the nation. And Jesus speaks of that. The days will come on you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. That's exactly what General Titus did with the Roman army. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another. That's why some scholars think the stones will cry out. Possibly the stones of the city that are in rubble because of the injustice that took place because the religious leaders emphatically rejected him. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Okay? And that was literally fulfilled in 70 AD, the Roman siege under Titus. Ravi Zacharias says this, 
Faith is confidence in the person of Jesus and in his power. So that even when his power does not serve my end, my confidence in him remains because of who he is. And you know, that's really the difference between the committed and the curious who blend in with the committed and the critical. The committed, their faith remains even when Jesus' work does not, right, fulfill their plans. They have faith anyway. And and really with this whole section of Scripture we've talked about today brings us to a point. It contrasts his disciples, those who rejoice in his coming, the coming of the king and the establishment of his kingdom. Even though it doesn't fit their plan, they have faith and they trust anyway. Versus the Pharisees, the religious leaders who categorically, emphatically deny his kingship. And what we see here is that those who receive him receive blessing. Okay? They have hope. There's promise. There's future. There's salvation. There's new life. All that's entailed in it. There's transformation. Jesus comes to Jerusalem at the time of the Passover, a a celebration remembering God's salvation and his deliverance. And those who receive him receive his salvation and the deliverance from sin. All that that entails, God's forgiveness and his love, his mercy, like the blind beggar, his grace, like Zacchaeus received his grace, his unmerited favor. That, that's the blessing that goes to the committed. But to the critical, for those who emphatically reject him, there's judgment. This passage of Scripture is sobering. For those who receive him, there's life. For those who reject him, there's judgment. That's sobering. But that's what the Scripture says. And so this morning, the the challenge for us is to recognize who he is. And the question is, what will you do with him? Will you receive him as king? Or will you reject him? That's the choice that's before every person. That's the choice that was before the people that first Palm Sunday, and that's the choice that's before us this Palm Sunday. If you have never entrusted your life to Jesus Christ, if you have never received him as king, oh, maybe you have received him as consultant, consulting him to help you accomplish your agenda. But if you have never subjected yourself to him, to say, you are my king. You are my savior. You are the one who forgives my sin. You are the one who gives me new life. And I will follow you. I'll follow you. I'm all in. If you've never done that, don't leave here this morning without doing that. Trust your life to Jesus. There's hope. There's promise. There's future, there's new life. 
Don't reject him. Because there are grave consequences for that. And what better way to begin this Easter week to follow Jesus from the gates of the city to the cross to triumphantly going to the tomb where the stone is rolled back and he's resurrected. Where we know we have victory over sin and death. And to give your life to Christ this morning if you've never done that. Don't play around. Don't wait. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that our King has come. And he's come, Father, to glorify you. He's come, Father, to deliver us from sin, the oppression of sin. He's come not only to improve our life, but to give us eternal life, a transformed life. And Lord, I'm praying today if there's anyone here that has never trusted you with their very lives. They don't know you as Savior. Maybe they've known you as consultant, but not king. That today they would invite you into their hearts and lives. Uh, Lord, with every head down and every eye closed, there's anyone here this morning that says, I want King Jesus in my life. Would you just raise your hand and let me see that so I know. You do that. You do that. Good. Put your hand down. Father, I pray for those this morning who are raising their hand, who are saying, I want Jesus as king of my life. I don't want him as consultant. I receive him, and I rejoice in his coming. I rejoice in his coming in my heart and life. I rejoice in the forgiveness of sin that he brings. I rejoice in the new life that he gives me. I rejoice in the purpose to which he's called me to serve him in the interest of his kingdom, not my own. Father, I thank you for those who have made that step, but that's the cry of their heart. Father, this morning, each of us here acknowledge that you are our king. And may this Easter week be one in which we rejoice as we follow you. Lord, from the cross to the victory and the triumph of the empty tomb. Thank you, King Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.